0: Everybody. last week we looked at how God chose to reveal himself to the neonate nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, some three months and three days after they'd come out of Egypt. And last week we saw how this theophany, this, this, this revelation of God, this God showing himself, we, we saw how this theophany was a demonstration of the awesomeness of God, his majesty, his power, his glory, and most importantly of all, his holiness. Uh, And then, um, just as we've heard today, having established these things, God speaks to Moses in the hearing of the entire nation, and he spoke to them, and what he spoke to them, we know, we know of as the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to consider these words in some detail. So, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, we're on page sixty. Page sixty, Exodus chapter twenty, beginning at the first verse. Now, um, we had a series on the Ten Commandments two years ago, so I won't necessarily go through all of the commandments in detail. I'll just stop to make some comments along the way as where I think it's necessary in order to understand the logic and the flow of the argument. But even before we begin to look at the Ten Commandments themselves, there are some things to be said. I mean, these commandments are extremely significant, apart from what they say. Apart from what they say, they're, they're, they're significant. And their significance can be seen by the following things. Firstly... The Ten Commandments are repeated. They occur twice, as you may already know. They're found here in Exodus chapter 20. They're also found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, And the point is made in both places that these are commands that are given forever. These are rules that eternally apply. They are the covenant behavioral expectations for God's people, how God expects his people to behave. So they're repeated. Secondly, the Ten Commandments are found at the start of the law of Moses. Both here in Exodus as well as in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments introduce the law of Moses, which thereafter is unfolded as hundreds and hundreds of laws, rules, stipulations, statutes, decrees, and case studies. But in both places, the Ten Commandments introduce and therefore summarize the law that will follow. Thirdly, these rules, these Ten Commandments, they, they come to Israel by a different fashion to all the other rules. Because all those other rules, well, Israel heard about these other rules because Moses told them and Moses wrote them down for them. But the Ten Commandments are different. Israel heard them directly from the Lord's mouth. And when it came for them to be written down, they weren't written down by the pen of Moses, but rather they were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. So there is is a different way by which these rules are transmitted. They're special. Fourthly, the specialness of of um, these Ten Commandments is further emphasized that out of all of the law of Moses, these ten, once they're written on the the two uh, uh, stone tablets, they're they're kept in a special box, and the box in a special place. And at this point in the story, the uh, box hasn't yet been built. It'll be called the Ark of the Covenant. But the two stone tablets containing the, the ten laws will go in the Ark of the Covenant itself placed in the Holy of Holies the most holy place in the temple. And fifthly, um, these Ten Commandments are referred to later on in the Bible as the words of the covenant or even as the covenant. Uh, So this is the covenant condensed. This is what it means. These these are special rules out of all the rules. Uh, These ten rules lay out the behavioral expectations of the covenant, how Israel is expected to behave. And they summarize all the law that will come after them. And they, in turn, can be summarized by two summary statements, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's, that's how these 10 rules are special and different. Now let's have a look at what they say. Um, The first four rules outline what it means to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. How do we love God? Well, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, This is an identity statement, just so we know exactly who we're talking about, just so we know who's who. The statement establishes that the people of Israel have been saved by grace in accordance with promises made to Abraham some 500 years ago by Yahweh, the Lord. um, uh, And as I explained three weeks ago when I taught on covenants, Israel's belonging to the Lord by covenant is unconditional. The blessings of the covenant are conditional. Conditional upon obedience. Obedience to the rules that will follow. But they've been saved by grace. They weren't saved because they were good and they kept the rules. No, they were saved Because God is compassionate and merciful. And now that they have been saved, this this is how God expects them to behave. They've been saved by grace. And this opening line reminds us, and them, of what they've been saved from. They've been saved from slavery. Slavery in somebody else's land. And the logical implication is, is that freedom is to be found in belonging to God and in obeying his rules. Um, this is all about freedom. It's not a list of do's. That would be enslaving. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Do that. that would be enslaving. This is, this is about freedom. You're free. Just don't do that, because if you do, you'll go back into slavery. This is a definition of freedom, and to depart from these rules is to once again find yourself under the bondage of Slavery. So let's read. First Commandment, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before or besides or except me. No other gods except Yahweh, except the Lord. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so what's the not? What's being banned here? Well, What's being banned here is the use of images, that is to say statues, their use in worship, that is to say, as an object of worship. Um, God is not shutting down the visual arts in religious context, but rather what he is doing is, is he's saying that this ubiquitous practice of humanity that was known everywhere at that time, the making of statues, and people would bow down and worship the statue because the statue was in the image of the deity, that was being worshipped. So you would worship the statue which was in the image of your god or goddess. And in worshipping, in worshipping the statue, um, uh, that would be identical to honouring and worshipping the deity itself because the image represented the deity. That was ubiquitous at this time. That's how everybody worshipped. It was so obvious to the ancient mind that this was the way that you worshipped your god or your goddess or your deity that it was perhaps even inconceivable what would worship without images even look like. Who could imagine that? Yet, even though it's ubiquitous, common, everywhere, everybody does it, God suddenly, in this second commandment, completely bans it. It is not to happen. No images as the object of worship. Why? Well, actually, there are many reasons. Images distort, summarize, simplify, contain. The the, the, the God who made the universe, the God who in chapter 19 reveals himself as being bigger than the universe, he cannot be meaningfully presented as a statue or in a picture without error. And really, all attempts to represent God by way of a statue or a picture, they're debasing because really they're just just attempts to control him. And, And that's the heart of idolatry. The heart of idolatry is trying to get the deity to do your will, to bend his will to yours by one mechanism or another. So images are banned. Besides, and here's an even more important reason, God has already set his image His statue on planet Earth, where is it to be found? Everywhere. Um, Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. We are the God statues. We represent, we are to represent God to each other and to the rest of the creation. We're created, we are the image. We are created, male and female, boys and girls, men and women, we are created in the image and likeness of God. And he's, God actually, interestingly, right in Genesis chapter 1, he's, he's happy with those limitations as long as there's no distortion, which is a really extraordinary idea, isn't it? It actually means that you know any one of us, we can walk up to each other and say, Hi, my name is Stephen Daly. I represent God. And so do you, by the way. Um, isn't that wonderful? Um, but it also means, I mean... Is Stephen Daly? Is is Kim Carley? Are we are we representing God faithfully? Well, uh, we're doing our best. <laughs> um, I, I hope so. But but what it means, of course, is that if if you did shake the hands of a human being who perfectly represented God, um, that p- person would be a perfect human being. To be a perfect human being is to perfectly represent God, which is wonderful. But there it is in Genesis 1, but now it's resonating here in in Exodus chapter 20 that if we were to ever meet a perfect son of Adam, if we were ever to meet a perfect son of man, that person logically would also have to be perfectly the son of God, the one who shows us exactly who God is. And that's established right at the beginning of the Bible. That's why images are banned. God's already set up his image on earth. So don't make statues, because here's a third reason why images are banned. Because the problem is with these statues is that we are inevitably conformed to the image of whatever it is we worship, because worship is imitation, and imitation is worship. Um, and if you know, if you just if you just worship the ground that say Ben Cousins or someone else. Famous walks on then obviously you 're going to get things tattooed on your tummy, and you 're going to want to be just like him aren 't you? Um, imitation is worship, and worship is imitation, and so you, you know that you 're conformed to the image of that which you worship uh, the The images of the nations are silver and gold, they have mouths, but they cannot speak, and what will happen to those who make them? they will be made like them um, so so not only are images harmful in terms of being blasphemous, in terms of being hatred towards God, images distort humanity. Um, images shape us badly, and we become less than human. So worshipping images is not only um, bad news In terms of it being blasphemy, it's bad news for people. We become less than human. To use the technical language, idolatry is both blasphemous and dehumanizing. Well, what else do we find in this second commandment? We hear that God is a jealous God. And that can... um, uh, arouse some anxiety because we use the terms envy and jealousy interchangeably uh, but actually they're different words and they have different meanings envy is when you want something that you, you want something doesn't that belong to you so for example i could be envious of sally's sparkling blue necklace um, and wish i had one um, uh, but it doesn't rightfully belong to me it belongs to sally Um, um, that's envy. Jealousy is when you desire something that inherently belongs to you. So, for example, I'm jealous for my wife's wifely love because that ought to belong exclusively to me uh, as my wife's husband. Um, uh, So so God is a jealous God. He, He is passionate about the things that ought to belong to him. And in context, that is our devotion our love, our obedience, and our worship, those things rightfully belong to God, and he's jealous for them. He's jealous for our love, in other words. Now, in this second commandment, bringing all these ideas together, we, have, we come to some extraordinary and inescapable conclusions and our conclusions are these. The person who worships an image, a statue, that person lessens God and tries to summarize and simplify God and contain God and put him in a box and manipulate God. That person hates God actually. That God wants God to be something other than God. This is treating God with contempt. In doing so, they themselves become less than human. They become a less than human human being. And what's more, this defamation of, of the human image will be passed on to the next generation because inescapably children grow up in the imitation of their parents. So logically, hatred of God, as expressed in idolatry, leads to a generation of people not acting like people. And their children just the same. And when people don't act like people, they usually act like animals. In fact, they usually act like predators. But the person who loves God and imitates God, merciful, compassion, kind, servant-hearted, gracious, um, the, the person who loves God, and this, in this context it means that, that they, they, they reject images and they allow God to be God, they allow God's will to reign in their life and not to try to manipulate God, uh, they will let God be God, and as they do that, strangely enough, they will become more and more human. And this will pay dividends for generations as their children imitate them. Now, thus. The the astonishing kindness and grace of this second... Con- it's amazing. is that God limits the damage of covenant unfaithfulness to only three or four generations whilst applying the dividend of obedience to a thousand generations. That's just plain extraordinary. And in this promise of this unequal punishment and blessing, in, in this extraordinary grace, there is the promise, promise of human progress. The the promise that actually things are getting better. That that actually it is better to live now than in all of the centuries previous. And you know what? In the future it will be better to live then than it is now because things are getting better in terms of what it means to be human. As as, as long as we keep on worshipping God and rejecting the worship of that which isn't God. Um, it's an extraordinary commandment. Let's move to the third one, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Uh, literally, the phrase is You shall not bear the name Yahweh your God in futility or emptiness. Um, this isn't simply about what you say. It's about how you will not misrepresent the name of Yahweh. Uh, You cannot be someone who belongs to Yahweh God and act as though you belonged to another God. That's the point, the essence of this command. The equivalent for us would be, you shall not wear the name Christian without behaving like a Christian in the imitation of Jesus. You cannot wear God's name and act as though you belong to another God, is this third commandment. Um, Fourth, at verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Um, Well, this is a crossover commandment. There are four commandments which teach us about loving God and seven commandments that teach us about loving people. Um, That makes 11. Uh, That's because this is the crossover one. This is about both loving God and loving people, isn't it? Um, The commandment already assumes that you understand that worshipping God is fundamentally copying God, living in imitation of him, Um, and that is the theological foundation of this commandment. Hey, God rested on the seventh day, so copy him. The seventh day, the last day of the week, the whole community takes a holiday together. Rest together, time together, worship together. And uh, if you think about it, this command is uh, obviously a nonsense command, an incoherent task description. I mean, if pushed too literally, I mean, what's work? Is getting out of bed work? Brushing your teeth work? I mean, what's work? It's not defined. Uh, It could be a heartache, couldn't it? Uh, farmers can't totally neglect their animals on the Sabbath, nor parents their children, although many attempted. Um, uh, carers, nor can carers uh, neglect the care of the sick on the seventh day. You, you know, doctors and nurses and hospitals, they don't clow, close down one day in seven. Um, so this command wakes us up suddenly to the idea that obedience, obedience must be something... There must be some parting of the road here, and actually, this this command shows us obedience to the laws of God actually must be by faith, which is a relationship of uh, an ongoing relationship in which there's prayer. Um, It's by faith, not by legalism. Otherwise, you just tie yourself up in knots and be a slave again. Um, It's an interesting, very Jesus has some very interesting things to say about this fourth commandment, but that's a sermon for another day. Um, we now have six commandments that follow about how to love people. Honor your father and mother, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, um, from the perspective of a traditional Middle Eastern society, what we're expecting is obey your father for he is the head of the household. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say obey, it says honor. And it doesn't say obey your father, it says honor your father and your mother. So what does this mean? Well, what is honoring? Is it the same as obeying? No, it's actually not. To, to, to honor someone is not identical with obeying them, although it usually includes obeying them. To honor someone means to give due weight to their authority, to respect their God-given authority. That's what it means to honor. Um, the commandment is therefore to respectfully honor God's authority in them over you as a child, to recognize their God-given authority. And in its place, this command will function to create a society that is respectful, actually, of God-given authority wherever it might be found. And in doing this, it will create a society where you can um, meaningfully create institutions institutions such as schools hospitals orphanages police forces armies you have institutions where god's authority is actually respected and therefore they work they work to serve the community because god's authority is being honored being respected and this commandment it builds this by assuming that the fundamental unit of society is the family that's the fundamental institution The institution that undergirds all institutions when it comes to human beings is the family, containing one father and one mother. Both are to be honored. One father, one mother, a point that is likely to offend many different cultures, but there you have it. Um, And this commandment assumes that for God's people, it is the role of parents to instruct their children in how to obey God's rules. Uh, verse 13. You shall not murder. Um, Traditionally, uh, in the authorised version, this was translated, you shall not kill. But Hebrew has a dozen or so words for kill. Um, uh, Interesting that. um, um, The Eskimos apparently have 50 words for snow. Um, And the word here is ratzak, which Razzak, which is a word which corresponds reasonably well with the English word murder. But actually, the word is broader than murder. It includes and encompasses manslaughter, voluntary or involuntary. It includes unintentional deaths as a result of culpable negligence. It includes any form of homicide, infanticide, etc., etc. Et it's a broad word. Now, the Bible... As a whole, teaches that there is a time for killing. Ruling authorities, as Paul puts it in Romans 13, they do not bear the sword for nothing. Um, so the, the ruling authorities, kings, governors, armies, police forces, they bear the sword in the defense of peace and human life. But what this command does do is it takes the sword out of the hand of the individual. Um, you do not have the right to bear arms, uh, not in your own name, in the name of the state, yes, but vengeance is not yours, is the point of this command. Human life is to be treated with the greatest of dignity and the most precious of gifts, and the individual does not bear the sword. Uh, English, by the way, by my count, has at least 19 words for killing, uh, Uh, You might like to make your own list. Um, Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. This word means to set your desire to desire. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, this commandment, it differs from all the rest in that it concerns actually, where's the sphere of this commandment? It concerns actually what goes on in the chambers of your heart, um, the place of thoughts, feelings and emotions and decisions. And obviously, such things can't be regulated by a human court. I mean, when it comes to judging each other's thoughts and motives, we can only guess, and when we do, we usually get it wrong. But the command... This command assumes that Almighty God, he does know and he has the right to expect obedience. Even in the secret chambers of your heart, he is there, he knows what's happening and he has the authority to judge it. Um, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known and from whom no secrets are hidden, he, he expects us to be obedient there in our hearts. Well, next week we'll look at how Israel reacted to these words. Um, How did they react? We'll we'll see that next week. But for us today, I guess a good question is, how do we react to these ten rules? Um, Well, here are some reactions, things that we can think of. Firstly, we should obey them. These rules are timeless. Um, We should obey them and never, ever think that breaking them will please God. We should memorize them if we haven't done that already and we should know them in order. And we should teach them to others in the expectation that they too will obey them. We should recognize that these laws which define, preserve and create freedom, these laws, they are easy to obey and that there is nothing difficult in them. They are not a list of do's. They're just a list of inf- of freeing don'ts. There's nothing difficult in them. We must beg God's forgiveness if we ever break them, because we are without excuse if we break them. We must recognize that they are easy to obey. We should also recognize that actually we can't keep any of them. All of us have broken all of them, at least at the heart level, if not actually at the actual level. The fact that we can't obey them is not because they're difficult. The fact that we can't obey them is because we're sinners. And I'm not suggesting that we break every command at every opportunity, but I am saying that our record on every commandment is inadequate. To keep the Sabbath mostly is to not keep the Sabbath. But if the law that was given was, in practice, impossible, why was it given? Well, it was given for this reason. Just as, last week, Exodus chapter 19 we have a shaking mountain that's on fire and billowing with smoke, and that, 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 that shaking, terrifying mountain reveals something of the holiness of God, so too, in its own way, the law of Moses reveals the holiness of God. And if a violently shaking mountain that's on fire and billowing smoke scares us, then these rules should really make us soil our pants. Because these rules, as a vehicle of holiness, a teaching tool, all about holiness, they show, us that, they show us what it means to be holy and they show us that we are not holy. Whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, the Ten Commandments, when they're doing their job properly, work so as to shut our mouths when we are in the presence of God. To use Paul's words, through the law, we become conscious of sin. These laws were given to us by God in order to drive us to Jesus. And when we're conscious of sin, we ask God to forgive us and we plead the protection from his holiness that only he can give. And timelessly, that protection is the blood of Christ. Because these laws are easy to keep, and Jesus is the only one who kept them. And he kept them without a slip, without a blip. He was blameless and sinless. Dying on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our covenantal unfaithfulness. And death was conquered when his father raised him from the dead on the third day. Jesus died for us. That was the father's plan and the son's will. And on that basis, we too are saved out of slavery—slavery slavery to sin, slavery to sin, a slavery to sin—that would have led to judgment, condemnation, and eternal separation from God. Um, what the New Testament announces is that actually, when we put our faith in Jesus. We get his blessings. We are counted because he took the covenant curse. He gives us freely the covenant blessing. We're counted, forgiven, blameless, without accusation, stain, wrinkle, or blemish in the presence of God, a holy God. His blood is the protection that God has provided. What that means is is that the law, these rules, they no longer have the same hold over us, leading to destruction. Destruction leading to captivity to, through, the, through our own disobedience because the, 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 the punishment has already been paid. And for us then, having been forgiven by grace through faith, we can uphold the law as, the, as a vehicle that demonstrates God's holiness and as a vehicle that will allow us to pursue God's holiness in our lives as we keep these commandments. And will we keep these commandments? Sure we will. We're going to keep these commandments in the strength of the Holy Spirit, following Jesus. When we stumble, we're going to ask for forgiveness and we're going to get up and have another go, knowing that we're children, that, that we belong, that, that our belonging is not conditional upon obedience. Knowing that actually we are holy, we are set apart for God's exclusive use. For, for all the leavening, for all the salt, for all the light, for all the ways in which God will make a difference in his world through his people, how he will make the world holy. The the Lord will be with uh, the Lord will be with you, the Lord is with you, the Lord be with you. Amen, thank you.